It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Friday, December 10th, 2021. I'm Kelly Reese and this is the KVMR Evening News. Up ahead on the California Report. Prosecutors have announced charges against the father and son suspected of starting the 221,000-acre Caldor Fire. Then we'll take a brief look at local entertainment news and weather before Al Stoller gives us a glimpse into the rooftop solar battle against Goliath PG&E. We'll close tonight's newscast with Felton Pruitt as he gets the details of the 16th annual Night of Giving from Hospitality House Development Director Ashley Quadros. This is the California Report. I'm Leslie McClurg in San Francisco. Prosecutors have announced charges against the father and son suspected of starting the Caldor fire, which destroyed nearly 800 homes last summer. Cap Radio's Scott Rod has the details. The criminal complaint charges 66-year-old David Scott Smith and 32-year-old Travis Shane Smith with reckless arson, but it doesn't specify how the two allegedly started the fire. They also face weapons charges tied to the possession of a machine gun and silencer, but it's unclear if those charges are related to the arson allegations. Defense attorney Mark Reichel maintains his client's innocence and says the investigation has been unfolding behind the scenes for months. You know, they've known that the DA's office is investigating them since August. They searched their house a couple of times. The complaint includes a series of enhancements that could compound any punishments faced by the father and son if they're found guilty. That includes allegedly causing injury to an emergency responder as a result of the fire. For the California Report, I'm Scott Rod in Sacramento. The coronavirus is spreading fast in L.A. County. The region is now back in the CDC's highest category of transmission. The spike comes in the two weeks since Thanksgiving. KPCC's Jackie Fortier explains. Los Angeles County health officials warned of the beginnings of a winter surge as new coronavirus cases totaled slightly more than 1,700 on Thursday. That's up from about 1,000 cases a day in mid-November. We have moved from substantial transmission back to high transmission. Barbara Ferrer is director of the LA County Health Department. If, as we suspect, this increase in cases reflects transmission that took place during holiday gatherings, we should consider this an early warning about the upcoming December holiday. The troubling trend of rising cases is also reflected in the number of hospital patients with the virus, which has risen to 666 people, an increase of 98 in just one week. Ferrer implored people to use the hundreds of free testing sites throughout the county and to get vaccinated or boosted if they haven't already. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com. Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at SchmidtFutures.com. Many Mexican immigrants in California are transported back home when they listen to the band Los Angeles Azules. 
The band's romantic cumbias were born in Mexico City barrios, but eventually they made their way to sweaty dance clubs in Los Angeles and far beyond. Now a few of the band's songs have a billion clicks on YouTube. This morning we're joined by Kate Linthicum. She's the Latin America correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Good morning, Kate. Hi. So you recently saw Los Angeles Azules live. This is a group that's six brothers and sisters, and they were on their 40th anniversary tour. What struck you about the music? So I've loved this band um, since getting to Mexico, where I live, uh, five years ago. It's it's the music people put on at a party to get people dancing. It's music that is just sort of infectious. And when I heard they were doing this 40th anniversary tour in the United States, it seemed like this great opportunity to see what this band meant to migrants, you know, and, and how it kind of might help connect them to Mexico. And people were very, very excited to see the band. Your article kind of captured a lot of nostalgia in your writing. Was there a lot of that brewing in the crowd? Absolutely. I mean, this is a band that's been around for 40 years. And so people have these long, you know, really deep-rooted kind of memories of them. And for a lot of people I spoke to, you know, who've been living in the U.S., for a number of years, and many of whom, you know, can't go back to Mexico or to their countries because of their immigration status. This kind of transported them home and, yeah, just like brought them to a pretty beautiful kind of emotional space. Are there spots in California where their music is especially popular, communities here in our state? Yeah, I mean, they sold out both of their shows in L.A. They played the Central Valley um, throughout the Inland Empire, I mean, they had more than 10,000 people at their show in Ontario, California. The cool thing is, is it's, you know, even though this band has been making music for a long time, they've kind of reinvented their sound in recent years and done a lot of collaborations with kind of more mainstream um, Latin artists. And so you have a lot of younger fans, too. So that was one of the things that struck me was that you had like grandparents, but also teenagers um, and everybody was singing along and, and dancing cumbia in these arenas. Would you say then that there's kind of a cross-border cumbia conversation happening from our side of the border to the other side of the border and back again? Yeah, I'd say it's like across the the entire, you know, region. I mean, Los Angeles Azules are huge in Argentina. And then, yeah, now there are like, you know, Mexican-American pop stars who are all want to collaborate with with them. There are people, you know, reggaeton artists in Puerto Rico that want to make songs with Los Angeles Azules. So yeah, they've really kind of transcended borders for sure. And and even, as I said, kind of generation and time. What's your favorite song from the band and why? Oh my God, that's a difficult question. (laughs) I really love them all. And hearing them live like three nights in a row was just the biggest treat of my life. But Como Te Voy a Olvidar is like the sort of most like pull at your heartstrings aching love song about, you know, how am I ever going to forget you? This spurned lover kind of just really getting kind of emo about it. The melodies, the accordion hooks, it's all just so irresistible. And that's the one that sticks in my head more than anything. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. Kate Lithicum is the Latin America correspondent for the Los Angeles Times.
And that's the California Report for Friday, December 10th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin, with assistance from Seal Muller and Jim Bennett. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong, and our executive editor is Ethan Toven Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Leslie McClurg in San Francisco. Thanks for listening. In today's local entertainment news, the penultimate Cornish Christmas is underway as I speak. Stroll Mill and Main Street in downtown Grass Valley with mold wine in hand and catch a glimpse of the new holiday murals alongside the classic Cornish Christmas favorites. After tonight, there's only one more Cornish Christmas left. This Sunday afternoon from 1.30 to 6, Victorian Christmas takes over downtown Nevada City. Peruse the lamp-lit streets filled with Christmas treasures. Walk shoulder to shoulder with wandering carolers dressed in Victorian attire while enjoying holiday activities for all ages, including live entertainment, yuletide treats and libations, and Father Christmas. Swing by Ike's Quarter Cafe while downtown and say a fond farewell during its final day. The Cajun Eatery shutters its doors after 20 years in Nevada City. The Miner's Foundry hosts the Nevada City Winter Craft Fair this Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The conception of the Nevada City Winter Craft Fair was inspired by the Renegade Craft Fairs across the U.S. and Europe. Now let's take a look at this weekend's local weather. Looks like it's time to hunker down. Forecasts for the Sierra show anywhere from 2 to 5 feet of snow beginning this Saturday night and lasting through Tuesday. Those above 6,000 feet may see 6 to 9 feet of snow. While snow levels could come down as low as 2,000 feet during the latter part of the storm. Quote, right now we're still on track and expecting this to be a pretty significant storm, end quote, National Weather Service meteorologist Hannah Chandler Cooley said. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 31. Tomorrow, increasing clouds with a high near 48. Rain is likely after 10 p.m. And Sunday, we'll see rain and gusts up to 25 miles per hour with a high near 43. Five to seven and a half inches of precipitation are forecast for the Grass Valley region Saturday night through Tuesday. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, areas of freezing fog after 1 a.m., increasing clouds with a low around 15. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 37. Come evening, clouds will roll in with a 40% chance of snow after 10 p.m. And Sunday, we'll see snow with a high near 36. Six to 10 inches of snow is possible by Sunday night. The National Weather Service announces a winter storm warning in effect for the Truckee Tahoe area from 10 p.m. Saturday to 10 p.m. Tuesday. Expect heavy snow and winds exceeding 100 miles per hour near the Sierra Ridge. Travel could be very difficult to impossible due to heavy snow and whiteout conditions. Very strong winds could cause tree damage and power outages. Secure those holiday decorations. The National Weather Service also advises avoiding travel if possible. You could be stuck in your vehicle for many hours. If you must travel, prepare for long delays and carry an emergency kit with extra food, water, and clothing. If you stay home, have a backup plan in case of power outages. And for our friends to the south, in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, increasing clouds with a low around 36. Patchy frost after 5 a.m. Tomorrow, patchy frost before 8 a.m., otherwise mostly cloudy with a high near 52. Sunday, rain and a high near 47. Winds could gust as high as 22 miles per hour. 
As solar panels become ever more affordable, more people are putting them on their roofs and hoping to sell any excess energy to power companies. But the utilities have other ideas. Here's science correspondent Al Stoller with more. West Valley resident Roger Berger recently installed solar panels on his roof. It's a seven kilowatt solar panel array that will supply most of my energy needs. During the summer, there will be surplus, and I'd like to send that back into the grid and have PG&E pay me for it. But they do not want to pay private solar suppliers. The utilities are now before the California Public Utilities Commission, not attempting to make it impossible for folks like Roger to feed power into the grid just to make it horrendously expensive. Dave Rosenfeld is executive director of the Solar Rights Alliance. The utilities are proposing to do two things that would effectively double the cost of going solar. The first thing that they're proposing is to charge a penalty fee just for putting solar panels on your rooftop. It is effectively a solar tax. PG&E's proposal, I believe, is like 80-ish dollars a month. The second part of their proposal is to slash the credit that solar users get for sharing their extra solar energy with the community. Right now, when you have solar, a lot of times you might be making extra energy. That extra energy just goes out the wires. The utility then sells that power to your neighbors and then credits you the same cost per kilowatt hour. What PG&E wants to do is still sell that extra electricity to the neighborhood for 25 cents a kilowatt hour, but they're only going to credit the solar user under their proposal five to seven cents per kilowatt hour. Five to seven cents for 25 cents worth of power. And that plus that solar penalty fee just for putting solar panels on your rooftop basically just kills the deal. Working and middle-class people just won't be able to afford rooftop solar. From an organization, 350 Bay Area, a climate support organization, the woman was very clear that PG&E makes its money via transmission lines. The transmission of the energy pays their shareholders and not the production of the energy. If we have solar panel owners putting energy into the grid so their neighbors can use it, the transmission lines will not be needed so much. PG&E and all the other utilities, what they want to do is kill off rooftop solar. They want to stop you from being able to make your own energy from the sun. How can we communicate with PG&E that this is not good? Don't bother communicating with PG&E. They're a 120-year-old monopoly. They're used to having utter domination, and they want to keep it that way. Don't bother with them. The specific agency that they are lobbying is the California Public Utilities Commission. That is an agency of the government that's supposed to regulate the utilities. I think it can be argued they've not done a terribly good job of that over the last few years, but they are the ones who make the decision and they are going to make a final decision early next year. The other person who is very important in this decision is Governor Newsom. Governor Newsom appoints the members of the CPUC. Several hundred rooftop solar enthusiasts attended a demonstration yesterday at the state capitol organized by the Solar Rights Alliance, and they brought something for the governor. Over 120,000 people wrote letters to the governor against this policy. Those letters were delivered to the governor's office. The governor really does need to weigh in here and use his enormous amounts of power to ensure that his agencies, his CPUC, does not kill off rooftop solar. I've been speaking with Grass Valley resident Roger Berger, and with Dave Rosenfeld, Executive Director of the Solar Rights Alliance. Again, the California Public Utilities Commission will decide on rooftop solar 
early next year. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. We're well into the holiday season, and a hallmark of this time of year is giving. Up next, Felton Pruitt gives us a peek at Hospitality House's virtual night of giving. Ashley Quadros, Hospitality House Development Director, shares with Felton what we can expect from the 16th annual festivity, including a glimpse at the musical lineup featuring folk singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist John McCutcheon. We're talking with Ashley Quadros. She's the Development Director for Hospitality House, who are putting on the 16th annual Night of Giving. It's coming up Saturday, December 18th. Thanks for joining us, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited for the return of Night of Giving next week. Yeah, it's going to be a little different than in the past, well, I guess the past 14 years. Uh, it was something that happened at the Miners Foundry. Mikhail Graham put it together, and you'd have every musician in the world out there and the entire community <laughs> would walk through the Miners Foundry. Since COVID, we really haven't been able to do that, have we? Right. Last year was our first big turn of, of events where instead of having a, you know, a large gathering at Miners Foundry, it was a virtual fair, and we still had you know, dozens upon dozens of artists um, show up and perform. And for many, one of the biggest feedbacks we had was that it was actually one of the more meaningful night of givings because it was one of the first times that our audience was able to learn in great detail about the type of work and services that Hospitality House has available. So we were met with overwhelming um, support and interest and really grateful that the community turned in virtually, and we're hoping they'll return virtually again this year with us. That's happening next Saturday, December 18th, and what time does that happen? It's at 7 o'clock, and you just go right onto our website, hhshelter.org. We'll also be streaming on our YouTube channel, which is also YouTube, you know, slash hhshelter, as well as our Facebook page pretty easy to find us, but we're primarily directing folks just to our um, website to, to view it, and it'll be debuting right at 7 o'clock. Um, but unlike, you know, last year even, I will just say now that it's not hours of entertainment it has been in past years. We've really condensed this year's format, but we still have about 30 artists performing. You want to give us a little teaser on who some of those artists are? <laughs> Well, one thing that we have very special that we've never had before, um, you know him well over there at KVMR, is we have John McCutcheon, actually, who will be one of our featured performing artists for the first time. He has long-standing ties to Utah Phillips as one of his near and dear friends. And because this is for Utah's homeless shelter, and um, he decided that he wanted to be part of this year's Night of Giving. So he is one of them. Um, we also have the Nevada Union Concert Choir, which is actually made up of about 15, 20 Nevada Union High School students, which is pretty special to have them performing as directed by Ron Baggett. You know, you'll also see a lot of familiar faces as well. Maggie McKay, Kelly Fleming, Sands Halls. Um, you could see the whole list of all of our performing artists at hhshelter.org. And we're just so honored that um, the artists continue to come through and help us all volunteering their time and talent to make Night of Giving possible. We're talking with Ashley Quadros, the Development Director for Hospitality House. The Night of Giving is coming up December 18th. That's a Saturday. And as you were telling people, it's uh, virtual this time. It's on the web. You will have a lot of folks, though, sitting by phones to take donations on Saturday night, the 18th, won't you? That's right, yes. So from 7 to 10 p.m., we will have live donation phone support. So anyone who's tuning in and watching and feels compelled to, to give, 
we will be able to facilitate donations right over the phone. I will actually be one of the ones taking those calls. Um, and, yeah, you just call us at 530-615-0852. And, of course, giving on our website also works. And as in traditional Night of Giving fashion, we have angel donors who have come forward for the night only to help make a triple match for the evening possible. Why don't you talk a little bit about what Hospitality House is going to do with all the money they get from the Night of Giving? So Night of Giving, as in you know traditional years, has really helped carry the shelter operations into the new year. So when somebody gives, for example, $25 during the night, with the angel donors each putting $25 in as well, that turns that donation into $100. $100 is enough to provide fuel and nourishment to 100 people. And it's so incredibly important right now because throughout the pandemic, Hospitality House has served 827 unique homeless individuals. Uh, We've seen a rise in homelessness throughout the pandemic, and Night of Giving is really a chance for the community to come together and provide necessary services to help people return to housing. Um, So that might look, you know, like a meal. It might be shelter, food, job training, case management, or just that little extra housing aid they might need to get into their home, such as a first month's rent or deposit. And, you know, as you know, in Nevada County, we have a, a major shortage of affordable housing, And so even just recently, Hospitality House became landlords of a 16-unit building called Sierra Guest Home, and we just opened this in October, and it's designed to give homeless seniors who are housing ready an opportunity to live with dignity with the wraparound support services that they may need, such as meal preparation. What else can you tell people about Hospitality House? How many beds are there at the Hospitality House over there on Sutton Way? So that's kind of a funny question because um, throughout the pandemic, we haven't really been consistent with with how things are. So in a normal year, we have 69 beds. But as you know, the pandemic has not been normal. It's been challenging us in more ways than any of us could have imagined. For the last year and a half, we've actually partnered to expand beyond our shelter into motels all around town, um, largely in partnership with County of Nevada, but as well as with um, AMI Housing, Communities Beyond Violence, Sierra Roots, Turning Point, all in a collective effort to help as many people as possible receive shelter care and services. So prior to COVID, you know, 69 was typically the max, max we could ever take on. Throughout the pandemic, we've had um, peaks up to 110 people every day. Uh, We have 90 people at this moment, including eight children. That's very sweet that the hospitality house exists. I guess we can look back to when uh, Utah Phillips and Joanna Robinson were just sitting around, I guess, at dinner table one night trying to figure out what to do next. And that was one of the things they did is start a homeless shelter. And here we are. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. I'm humbled to always remember that we began because our community, you know, Utah, Joanna, and several other people saw that we had a serious problem on our hand and doing nothing was not an option. And that's how Hospitality House came to be. We're 16 years strong, and we really owe it to the community for furthering our work every day, year after year. So we've got Saturday, December 18th from 7 to 10 p.m. What's the phone number people call? 530-615-0852. And I will be one of the folks helping you over the phone to facilitate your donation. So I sure hope you'll call and help us make this year's Night of Giving extra special. 
and then you can go to hhshelter.org, and then you can watch, I guess it's about a half an hour, a little longer video. Yeah, so the entire event this year is um, just under a half hour. And again, we still have around 30 or even more performing artists. And so I don't want to give too much away, but we have um, something very, very special in store in such a short period of time. So it's worth tuning in, but if you can't make that exact time, we will keep it up on our website. So if you can't make that that Saturday, you can watch again the next day. But the triple matching is only available that night only. That's Ashley Quadros. She's the Development Director for Hospitality House. Night of Giving coming up Saturday, December 18th. Thanks for everything you folks do over there. Thank you so very much. That's our newscast for this Friday, December 10th. KVMR gets support from the Nevada City Farmers Market every Saturday from 8.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. in Union Alley through December 18th. Featuring sustainably grown food from local farmers, crafts, artisanal offerings, and live music. EBT accepted, ncfarmersmarket.org. And Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley. Stocking greenhouse coverings and components, down-to-earth amendments, IPM products, and more. Open Monday through Friday, 10 to 5. Carmen'sGarden.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Stay safe and cozy this weekend.